Welcome to the Bike Rumor Podcast, where we spin off from our usual tech coverage to pick the brains of the people behind the brands. If you want to hear how bikes and components go from ideas to the things we ride, this is the cycling podcast you've been waiting for. Please welcome your hosts, Tyler and Watts. What's up, Bike Rumor fans? Welcome to the show this week, where our guest is Josh Portner, the founder of the Modern Day Silka. And not only do we get to hear a little bit about how he started the new company, but we get to hear his take on tariffs and how they are pretty much destroying the U.S.'s ability to be competitive, at least small companies here and even some large companies. So it's going to be super interesting. Stay tuned. You're going to love this one. Hey, Josh, welcome to the Bike Rumor Show. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to have this. So I went and saw you a couple weeks ago. We did a little factory tour, and that is our headquarters tour. Not so much factory, but you guys do a lot of assembly there. And that is up and live on bikerumor.com. I'll put a link to that in the show notes for this episode so people can check that out. Um, while we were there, we had some good conversations about the brand, how you came to acquire, and then we kind of got on the subject of tariffs and how they're kind of killing everything. And yeah, it was. <laughs> yeah. And, and maybe not for reasons that are in ways that people think. Right? Yeah. And that's been the biggest revelation for me. The more people I talk to is like, yeah, I think we were all sold this bill of goods of like, yeah, this is going to bring jobs to America. That's why we're doing it. And that's, it's almost seems like that's the opposite that's happening. And it's almost encouraging brands to offshore. So it's, I think people are going to be really surprised by some of the ways that it's impacting you as an individual company, but the industry as a whole. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. And so just to not to belabor that, because I want to hear a little bit about the history of Silka just, and how you came to acquire it. Because, you know, for people who don't know, you're not the original founder of Silka. It's actually a very old Italian company. Um, but I want to put some numbers out there because I just wrapped up going to Outdoor Retailer, which the first time in that show was amazing. And some of the statistics that they were saying out there is like, just just the trade war so far, and we're talking, you and I are chatting on late June 2019, has cost the outdoor industry something like a billion plus dollars And that when the tariffs fully hit, it's going to end up being something like a one and a half billion dollars costing the outdoor industry every month and we all know that those costs are eventually going to have to get passed on to consumers which is going to suck for everyone yeah that's going to be challenging yeah. it's it's going to be challenging let's start off with fun yeah. stuff how did right. tell me about silka how did uh what's the brand history and how did you come to acquire it oh okay so you know, silka was founded 1917 uh in milan italy by a guy named felice sacci who was an aircraft engineer uh, and who had worked for a time also at Fiat. So, you, you know, thinking in your history, this is right at the end of World War I uh, when this is all happening. And he had the vision um, to make a pneumatic pump that instead of using like a stack of leather washers, which was the technology of the time, to cup the washer so that it would breathe in one direction and seal the other, uh, which was a huge step forward. And so he developed this idea, patented it, uh, started making pumps for bicycles and motorcycles. So, you know, 1917 through really uh, the beginning of World War II, Silka was producing pumps for uh, every trunk uh, foot pump for Fiat was made by Silka. 
the Ducatis, the Piaggios, uh, you know, all the, the scooters and motorcycles of that era, their inflation equipment, a lot of the valves were all made by Silka. Um, and then the company's leveled to the ground. Uh, it's first nationalized by Mussolini in World War II and then bombed flat <laughs> and uh, really restarted in 47 as the company that we all kind of knew it to be in the 70s and 80s. Um, you know, I came to know Soka, my, uh, you know, probably my second or third ever bike shop job in the early 90s uh, was at Grand Performance in St. Paul, Minnesota with my good friend Dan Casebeer, who only carried Soka pumps. And, uh, you know, we pe people don't remember that Soka pumps were pretty premium product in the day. And, you know, the 1990 uh, Soka floor pump was $90 in an era that, you know, the most expensive bike that I'd ever seen was a Colnago Master with uh, Campagnolo C record. And, you know, that bike was 2,700 bucks. And so I remember telling Dan at the time, you know, I, I can't afford a $90 pump and him saying in that awesome X pro sort of way, like, look kid, there's two types of pumps. There's this one and there's crap, <laughs> you know, just seems, buy this one. It right? seems like that price relationship is almost kind of okay. Cause yeah. now we have, you know, like $10,000 bikes at the high end, which good or bad is kind of the norm for that top level stock bike and you know your pumps top level are a few hundred bucks now right yeah yeah we've we've way more than beat inflation uh <laughs> compared to the rest of the industry you know the uh yeah, ironically you know what uh what ultimately becomes silka's undoing is uh you know italy moves on to the euro uh in 2000 and you know italy had i think we've all uh kind of built italy up as you know this land of fine materials and craftsmanship but really the strength of italy was it had this terrible weak currency the lira uh and if you know you remember i i was at zip making parts for campagnolo in the late 90s early 2000s and you know it was shocking to you know we could go to italy and live for so you know you could live so good for so cheap right you think there used to be that book europe on five dollars a day and then it was europe on ten dollars a day and you know, I was traveling back and forth to Campagnolo and, you know, a, a, a beer was, you know, 500 lira, maybe a thousand lira for a good beer. And, you know, that was like, like 25 to 50 cents. Right. And, and, you know, two years later, uh, once Italy's on the Euro, you know, a can of Coke has gone from 500 lira to one Euro, right. Which is like a dollar, a little over a dollar and a beer had gone to two Euro. Right. And, and so Italy lost its ability to export affordably. And that really just was the beginning of the undoing, uh, for the company, you know, Silka pumps, um, all of a sudden doubled in price for the rest of the world. They couldn't export them. And so they, they tackled it in the only way they really knew how, which was to try to make a cheaper pump. And so no surprise, you know, the Silka pumps of the, you know, 2008, uh, 2006, 2008 onward, you know, there's lots of plastic and they're, it's just not a good product. And so the company's in huge trouble. It's sliding into bankruptcy. Uh, you know, my friend Claudio Sacchi, the grandson of the founder, um, I'd known him since I'd gotten into the industry in the late nineties because we, you know, at Zip, we bought all of the disc valve adapters from Silka, uh, cause they made the best one. And, you know, he calls me probably middle of 2013 and says, uh, you know, I've been trying to sell the company for a year. It's bankrupt. Uh, the government's going to take it over and I have terminal 
uh, cancer and a few months to live any ideas. Jeez. That sounds <laughs> right. horrible. <laughs> so, yeah. So uh, about, you know, the perfect storm of, of terrible things happening to this poor guy and his family. And, you know, I, I got off that first phone call thinking like this, you know, poor guy and who, who wants a hundred year old brand of a bankrupt company in a category that quite literally is dominated by two Chinese manufacturers, right? Because the, the other thing bringing the pressure on is that, you know, every pump, right? Every pump and inflation device in the market, I mean, with the exception of one here and one there, uh, and Silco comes from two Chinese suppliers. And so, you know, this is part of Chinese, China joining the WTO, and we'll play a little bit into our tariff story, you know, of later, you've got subsidized materials, you've got you know, super cheap labor, you've got no environmental controls, on and on and on. And so, you know, what had been happening to Silca while it was living through this euro inflation thing in Italy was that, you know, the market is being flooded with these very, very inexpensive Chinese made pumps. And, you know, the, the two suppliers that make them, I mean, I think the one makes 15 million pumps and the other makes 18 million pumps a year. I mean, you know, the, the kind of scale that's hard to begin to wrap your brain around right, right. yeah so it's, it's kind of this hard to compete with yeah and there's no way you could you know i i couldn't make the identical pump that any of my competitors make for anywhere near the cost that they make it right, right? because they've got this huge economy something like that in perspective how many pumps do you guys make per year oh yeah, we we don't say but it uh i mean nowhere near you know we're in the all of them combined is in the thousands okay. <laughs> right so <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not uh, not that many by comparison, and and uh, so you know, getting off the phone with him and thinking like, oh, you'd be insane to buy this company, and then really, you know, for the next couple of days, thinking through, you know, my experience being at Zip, and I was still at Zip at the time, was, you know, well, gosh, every every pump with every protein, we replace the gauge with a real gauge that is accurate, and you know, we. We still use Soka pumps at the wind tunnel because, you know, we I've had pumps break at the wind tunnel and a thousand dollars an hour a broken pump that keeps you from making a run is costing you hundreds and hundreds of dollars, right? Um, you know, and then you start having thoughts like, well, why can't somebody just make a valve extender that, you know, works? Yeah, <laughs> like, Which, and like, that's, and, I think that's such a perfect example of the Soka, you know, because people look at Soka and yeah, it costs a lot, but. Explain the difference between your valve extenders and everything else. Because when you told me, I was like, huh, that's amazing. Yeah. So the detail, valve extenders and our, our tubeless valves are the same way. You know, the 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 things that make – well, the things that make valve, these parts terrible is that the government the – not the non-governmental bodies, the ISO, the ETRTO, who have controlled these historically have set the tolerances – in a way that it allows for the cheapest possible manufacturing. Well, what that means is that you can be technically in spec and have parts that fit together just horribly, right? And when you're trying to make a pneumatic seal, that's a, a big challenge. So, you know, we we operate in a world where we only use a fraction of the tolerance, uh, which is much more expensive, and we pre-coat all of our threads with sealant, and we use uh, you know, the highest quality synthetic rubber gaskets and a, a bunch of other things that kind of guarantee, you know, you, you buy one of my extenders, it will seal, 
You just screw it together and it's sealed. But the other um, thing is yours are machined, whereas everything else is extruded, which ends up with a, right. a seam. Yeah, and, and so and that's really big in tubeless. You know, why do aluminum tubeless valves and and to some extent valve extenders, but tubeless valves in particular, you know, the aluminum ones have a terrible reputation and and the two things that cause problems here are, you know, yeah, one, they're all made from extruded uh, tube and then machined. And with extruded tube, you have a seam, it, it, albeit an invisible one, but there is a seam where that material uh, in the extrusion kind of formed around, um, you know, around the little internal separator to allow the hole in the middle. And it's it's been seamed back together. And so the material in that spot is a little bit weaker than everywhere else. Um, and extrusion by nature is a little bit less strong than like a cold rolled tube or a cold rolled rod, right? And so instead of using that extruded tube, we start with a cold rolled rod, uh, a much a, a harder, stronger material, and then we gun drill it. Um, and the reality of gun drilling is it's expensive. You know, you're drilling it 20 times diameter, 30 times diameter. It's a slow process. Um, it gives you a stronger, better, much higher precision part, but it does it with a cost. Um, and the other piece of that is, is that with tubeless valves, you know, the outer rim hole and the inner rim hole or the OD and the ID hole as the manufacturers would say, they're never perfectly radial to the rim. I mean, it's almost impossible to do. And so when you screw the tubeless nut down, the nut always contacts one side of the rim first before the other. And with tubeless, you need that nut to be tight for the seal. And so as you tighten it down, it puts that section of the tube in bending, right? And this is a thin-walled aluminum tube that is not meant to be in bending, <laughs> and especially if it's got that seam in it because it's extrusion. Um, and so like in that instance, you know, we've developed a – we call it the speed shield. It's a little grommet that fits over the rim that has a uh, essentially a spherical socket uh, shape in it. And then our nut is the ball, right? And so we've created a ball and socket joint to resolve all those forces as linear in the stem instead of putting the bending into it. So, you know, it's that, yeah, we, we obsess over these yeah. really I mean, minute ever tools. thought you needed that much, <laughs> that much went into coming up with a little valve extender or tubeless valve stem. It's crazy. Uh, so you, you're thinking this idea over like, ah, oh, man, well, we use all this silica stuff anyway. And then what was that like? What clicked that made you say, you know, I'm going to go for this. I'm going to buy Silka. I, I think it was, you know, I was looking, I was ready to do something else. I'd done the wheel thing for a bunch of years. And um, yeah, it just seemed like, wow, there's there's a lot of valve extenders in the world. If I made a good one, somebody would buy it, you know. And so even I, I had, I think what clicked was that that idea that even if people didn't want to buy better pumps, people would want better accessory, you know, better versions of the the crap that they were forced to buy now. Um, it, you know, whether that was a valve extender or a disc wheel adapter or, uh, you know, every bike shop you've ever been into, no matter what the, the brand of pump was, it's got a Silka chuck on it, <laughs> right? Because eventually the chuck breaks and the, the shop owner cuts it off and plugs an old Silka chuck in and it works for, you know, years. So I, I think it was just having that confidence that, we didn't have to be a pump company. Uh, we could do other things uh, that pushed me over. And you know, I think honestly, too, it, it it was fun and exciting to think, wow, we there's a whole sea of commodity crappy product out there. 
we know how to make better. We just don't. <laughs> right? I mean, we know how to make good tools. We just choose not to. And so what if what if we showed up and just chose to do it right or chose to put some technology and some quality materials behind it? Like there's got to be people out there like me who who are interested in that. And, and that was what clicked, I think, to to give me the confidence to take the leap. Well, there are because you guys are growing pretty good, right? Yeah. No, things are great. Things are great. Yeah. So we're, what, five years in, we're 24 employees and growing sold worldwide. Yeah, it, it's it's been a great ride. It's been a great awesome. ride. And so what you actually purchased, though, was basically just the trademark, right? Like the company had gone into bankruptcy or receivership with the state of Italy, country of Italy, yeah. right? Yeah, government receivership, which is uh, essentially government ownership. And we we purchased back the trademark. So yeah, day day one of Modern Silco was me with a, a piece of paper that had the Silca trademark on it, the word mark, um, for the cycling categories of trademark, um, and a blank laptop. Yeah. It, <laughs> that was, <laughs> and nothing, no parts. You got no, no inventory, no nothing. Nothing, nothing, no. Yeah, so we actually, uh, like almost all of the modern gaskets and things are built to the fitments of the originals, right? So you can put a modern high-tech Silka gasket in an old pump, but to get those, uh, you know, those dimensions, we actually bought, you know, historical spare parts and pumps off eBay. And, uh, yeah, we, we had to go out and actually purchase all of that to take it apart, to reverse engineer it. That's funny. Was that, I mean, that seems like a lot of foresight though, to say, okay, well let's, if we're going to start, let's make, Let's make them the same so that people can keep using the ones that they've had for decades, maybe, and, you know, continually replace them. And that's the thing. Like, these things are made to last a lifetime, really, with just a couple of replacements. And those those leather gaskets that you use, the cup uh, cup gasket or cup seal, those are – you're still using the leather from the same place that the original Silka did, right? Yeah, so same same vendor on that part since 1947. <laughs> and uh, and the, the deal we have with them is pretty cool. They they specialize in luggage and automotive interior. And, uh, you know, you think of what a, a cowhide looks like and what, you know, a, a briefcase or a, a piece of luggage looks like. You end up with all these triangles, essentially, of unusable material that would be thrown away. And so – you know, taking that post-World War II culture, right, of making the most of everything, uh, Silka was, you know, stamping gaskets from these offcuts. And I just felt that was such a beautiful uh, story. You know, we're, we're taking stuff that would otherwise be in the landfill and turning it into something that uh, actually is, it's much more expensive <laughs> than a rubber O-ring or a rubber seal. And it, but it lasts 10 times longer. It you know, it holds the oil uh, so that it's self-lubricating. I mean, it's really a beautiful material to use. Um, yeah, it, you know, we, how, like, we it, couldn't it, break that up. It molds <laughs> you know, as you move it, whereas a rubber gasket seal wears down and creates less uh, less of a seal. This one, it actually kind of wears itself into any grooves that get inside and forms a tighter seal. So this one, the more you use it, it actually pumps better. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So we say that with every other, with a rubber seal, every pump stroke is k slowly killing that pump. And with the rubber uh, cup gasket, every stroke is actually making the fit between the, 
the gasket and the the tube ever more perfect. Yeah, the leather cup. You said rubber. <laughs> the, make sure oh, sorry, the leather cup. Leather yeah. cup. Yeah. 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 So with with the Silka pump, you know, we're we're actually getting better with age. Right on. <laughs> so was that the the first when you acquired this? The first step was to just recreate that original pump and start selling that, or was there some other product that was the first thing? No. So the the first product was actually to kind of redesign all of the replacement parts. Uh, you know, I, I knew there were pumps out there that could use them and it, it felt like the, the best way to kind of bring, well, one really learn about, uh, the subcomponents and the, how things worked. Cause we were going to have to do that anyway. Um, but also as a one man show, you know, it was something I could kind of get my hands around, right. <laughs> you know, I can, I can CAD and make the mold tooling and, and make these 20, uh, subcomponents. And so it, it, it was a way to bring modern materials in everywhere other than the leather, um, cup gasket. Uh, we could bring modern materials in and modern molding techniques and things and tool up with new vendors and go forward. Uh, and then really the first, the first product product, uh, we did the hero Chuck, um, which, which came out right before the pump came out. And, uh, you know, the hero Chuck was something that kind of got us back into the pro tour because it, it's what the pro mechanics wanted. Uh, and then we did the ultimate pump, um, probably nine months in. I mean, it took, we, it was, it was a quick design cycle to get there. Were you still working at zip or is this a moonlighting project or did you quit? No, no. 100%? Yeah, no, I, I quit and went a hundred percent. There's, there's no other way. <laughs> yeah, no. So, yeah, no, it just takes too much. I, I think the moonlighting thing is great for consulting or certain types of business, but for something like this, it's like you, you've just got to, you got to go all in or you'll never do it. Yeah. What's the, the, whichever of all the products that you make now, and you guys have tools, mini tools, big pumps, little pumps, and the, now the hero bell and some other stuff. What is the hardest thing to design and build? Right. Oh gosh. Okay. Most difficult to produce. I, I would say is still the ultimate pump. Um, you know, that, that product is something like 72 subcomponents from 24 vendors in, I think it's 11 or 12 countries, right? So the, the production aspect is done all here in the U S it's all hand assembled, you know, measured tolerance fit together. Um, but really the, the logistics of that product are just incredibly difficult, uh, trying to deal with all these vendors and all these languages and all these places and time zones and then get all the parts into one location at the same time, right? You, you forget that, you know, one, um, you know, one seal or one screw missing and you can't make anything. <laughs> you're, you're stuck. Uh, so that, that I think is one of the things that just has proven to be one of the biggest surprises of this, this company for me is just how challenging some of the, uh, the logistics can be. Yeah. And, and I think you have some new challenges coming about with some of those parts, which is a nice segue into the whole tariffs and, and trade war thing, because some of the components that you source are things that are made from domestic materials produced domestically. And those seem to be some of the ones that are causing you a lot of problems because the prices are going up. The availability is becoming more, I don't know if questionable is the right word, but perhaps limited because of aerospace or uh, military contracts going up, which means they're getting all of the line time and you guys are not. 
<laughs> right, right. Yeah, so I think, uh, you know, tariffs have had, uh, I think you would call them maybe unintended consequences. Um, I, although I think the way they've been structured, it's hard to know what the true intentions really were. Right. Um, well, you know, I think ultimately it was to punish China, right? And it's which is working. Yeah, I, well, it's, I, yeah, I think it's it's a combination of trying to punish China and trying to you know feed the the you know the base here, right? Pe- people who who don't want to see jobs leaving America, and uh, you know my you think of my history, you know, um, sixteen years for fifteen years with Zip, you know, we were hundred percent, almost hundred percent American made except for bearings from Switzerland. And, uh, and you know, we watched competitor after competitor go to Asia and, and come back with product where they were undercutting us on price. And, and the reality was that the, the general market didn't seem to care, right? So, you know, I've been selling Made in America for my whole career. And um, it, it's, it's a challenge because, you know, the people might be willing to pay 5% more for that, 10% more for that. But the reality is that the cost of production can be you know, two to five times more greater. So, uh, it, it's, it's kind of getting, getting those things in line. I, I think, you know, the, the challenge with the way they put the tariffs down is that they've put the tariff and, and make no mistake. I, I don't care what he says on his Twitter. He's lying. <laughs> I mean, I, I yearn for the days when, you know, the worst lie the president told was that, you know, when Obama said you could keep your doctor and like 5% of people couldn't keep their doctor. Um, you know, that was a terrible lie. Uh, you know, not that I agreed with Obama on everything, but, you know, that was considered a big lie. And, you know, over and over, he says China's paying for these tariffs. And the reality is that American companies pay for the tariffs, right? I mean, the, the company that imports the product pays in cash the tariff to, to essentially to the government to get the product released from the dock. Uh, so American companies are paying for uh, the tariffs uh, with their hard-earned money that they could otherwise be spending on employees or capital investment or things like that. So, you know, having said that, uh, the unintended consequences, you know, our company, we we just buy a couple of products and really smaller ones from China. I mean, I have one Chinese vendor um, and that's uh, – they, they produce our uh, bag products. And the reality there is that the materials for the bags are all made in China. So it doesn't make sense to take those high-tech materials and put them in their three-meter-long bolts uh, and ship them somewhere else to then cut them into components to make bags where you're you're shipping and moving all of this material that's ultimately going to be waste, right? We get about 80, 75-80% material usage it's so much better to have your factory either co-located or very closely located near where the raw materials are produced. Uh, and, and that's the situation we have. That's actually, the bags are made by an American company. It just happens that their factory uh, is in China. But uh, but where we've seen the biggest hits, interestingly, yeah, are on our U.S.-made products. And, and what's happened there is that... Um, you know, along with the tariffs, the, the government has instituted record uh, governmental spending and record military spending. And so if you look at the defense budget passed last August, it's $200 billion uh, bigger than anyone before it. I mean, $200 billion, right? So we in there decided to completely retrofit um, all the F-18s. Uh, you know, we've added F-35s. We've added an entire northern fleet 
uh, you know, of ships uh, to the Navy and on and on and on. Well, by law, all of the raw materials for those, uh, you know, for those purchases have to be U.S. made raw materials. And so what that's done is it, it you know, kind of squeezes, it's increased the pressure um, and the pricing on American materials at baseline. And then the 25% tariff on that foreign materials has had this weird effect where um, a lot of the U.S. steel mills, say, are making U.S. steel by importing Chinese steel and then rolling it or modifying it or working it into some other form and then reselling it. And so, you know, the U.S. steel company is paying the 25% tariff and then they're modifying it and marking it up. And so that 25% is getting marked up, you know, at the mill and then marked up at the distributor and so on and so on and so on. Um, and so the, the reality on the ground, the, the combination of those two things, you know, we've seen, you know, high end aluminums are roughly doubled in price, uh, here recently and high end steel, like 17, four steel, which we use in our, uh, the Presta Chuck is almost triple to what we were paying for it, uh, about 14, 15 months ago. And, that, and unfortunately that that's untenable, right? Yeah. Well, right. and I think that I, even even if it's even the stories I've heard and some of this from you is even if the raw materials aren't coming from China, the raw materials being made and sourced here in the U.S., they say, oh, well, if all of a sudden this Chinese steel or aluminum or titanium, whatever it is, right, is, is more expensive, well, we can charge more. So even though they don't have to charge more, their costs didn't actually go up. They're charging more because they can because now it's right. the Chinese stuff costs more. So why not? make more money. Oh yeah. There, there's definitely been some of that. You know, I think, um, if you listen to marketplace, uh, it's one of my favorite podcasts to listen to. It's a 30 minute show every day, just uh, on NPR. But, uh, one of his regular guests is a steel lady in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, who owns a steel mill. And, you know, she's been quite funny in all this since to say, you know, how much of this is because you have to, and how much of this is profit taking. And she keeps saying, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity to ring the register. You know, of course we're going to profit take. I mean, that that's what capitalism is. Right. And uh, so, you know, you can't, uh, you can't blame them for this. I mean, they're, they're, you know, playing with the cards they've been dealt. And uh, you know, from, from where a company like ours sits, they've, you know, the government has just dealt them a really loaded hand. Um, you know, the, the challenge and where I think that, this tariff thing was really poorly, poorly thought out is that it doesn't take into account um, quality or, or general supply chaining. So, you know, you want to, you want to help the U S steel industry. So you put this tariff on steel and then you want to hurt China. So you put this additional thing on China, but you know, I have products where I'm buying uh, seriously expensive exotic steel from Switzerland, right? Well, that steel from Switzerland is treated exactly the same as the steel from China is, right? And so, you know, the story that's largely told is, well, China's dumping steel into America at cheap prices. And and I won't deny it, they are. Um, the thing is that the reason they're doing it is that they're overproducing. <laughs> and so there's an oversupply in China. The tariff thing isn't going to change. All the tariff thing is going to do is reduce the amount of steel that's coming into America from China, which means that that steel is going to go elsewhere in the world and depress prices there, meaning that now we can't, it, it's that much harder for us to export to those countries, right? So I think if you think about it, it's sort of a, it's like a global shell game, uh, certainly from where I sit that, okay, well, the, you know, the, 
the, the Chinese government runs and controls these factories. And, you know, uh, without a doubt, the Chinese government and, and the way that they've run things, yeah, it's it's dirty business. And, uh, you know, they're taking every advantage they can and they're doing a lot of stuff that is really bad and wrong. Uh, the problem is that the way we're, we've chosen as a country to handle it is just going to kind of move the, the shell somewhere else and then cause us export problems. And, you know, our, our company we certainly see that, you know, something like half our business is export. And so, you know, when we put the steel and aluminum tariffs on, some of my customer countries then put counter tariffs on, right? So if I'm shipping a, a set of T-handles, which are a tool that's, you know, more than 95% steel, well, if I'm now shipping those into Europe, I'm now facing additional, or my customers are facing additional tariffs. Um, so you're, so that, basically but, you're penalized by bringing the materials in and producing here. So where you could be creating jobs and making products here from domestic materials and everything else, that's become so expensive that you're actually incentivized to start producing those things, you know, in Europe to service your European customers or wherever else. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We, the way it's worked out, we would be, we would be better off today to offshore a hundred percent of our operation to, uh, like a, a Taiwan, Vietnam, or Malaysia, um, it, that would save our our customers a fortune, and and quite frankly, would increase their purchasing um, because they could get essentially the same stuff, uh, you know, with it, less expensive, right? Because you'd be making it with cheaper labor um, and cheaper overheads, and then not having to pay the tariff in addition. So I, you know, I have I have some countries where my distributor is paying something on the order of like 42% in duties, taxes, and tariffs to land uh, to land a product. Yeah, I think, so the thing I've heard, the other unintended consequence of this is, like you said, you know, you'd be incentivized to move your assembly and production offshores is that, it, exactly that, right? Like, I think the promise we were sold during the election cycle and ongoing since is that, well, you know, if we're, punch China in these things, it's because we want this manufacturing to come back to the U.S. and out of China. But the reality is nobody's bringing that manufacturing to the U.S. They're moving it, like you said, to Thailand and Vietnam and Malaysia and Philippines and Taiwan and everywhere else except America because the labor costs are lower. So it's it's certainly leaving China. And I've heard from a few people that it, it is, in fact, hurting them, but it's not helping us. Right, right. Yeah, so, for example, our... Uh, our, our bag manufacturer, which is a, a Seattle-based company that that owns this factory in China, they are moving that factory to Myanmar, um, and and our the the bags that we produce uh, and the raw material to produce the bags uh, will now be made in Myanmar. I mean, there's no, and, and I think that's where the the people making the decisions lack the fundamental understanding of how things get made. That it really is all about supply chain and. You know, the the manufacturing will go where the supply chain exists and where it's supported. Um, and so, you know, I think if we really wanted to bring jobs to America, it's quite easy. I, Europe has set the model, right? There's there's something like 30 or 35 brands of bicycle uh, in Europe with large-scale factories with hundreds of employees uh, assembling bicycles at European minimum wage, which is high, right? You know, 20 euros an hour or 18 euro an hour, depending on what country you're in. Um, th there's a strong bicycle assembly market in Europe. And that's because 
they've chosen to take the tariffs off the subcomponents and then apply the tariffs to the finished good, right? The end product. So if I want to import a bicycle, uh, you know, into a European country, a whole bicycle may have a 25, 30% tariff on it uh, or duty. Um, but if I wanted to import all of those components, they come in at, at very low duties and tariffs, right? And so all of a sudden that, that money that you would spend, um, in the duties and tariffs or the tariffs in this case, um, you just, you invest as capital and you, you build the bicycles yourself and that gives you added flexibility. I mean, that's, it's why we, we assemble every Silco component and package it in the U S still, because we, we like the flexibility of that. I like the ability to hundred percent QC all of my subcomponents to have eyes on every single product. Um, but the way the tariffs are working out for us, that it's been incredibly uh, disadvantageous. I, I, I've probably paid two employees, three employee salaries um, in tariffs just this year uh, on various things that we've brought in, you know, steels, aluminums. Um, and that's really excluding the specific, you know, uh, stuff that's aimed at China. So if you think about that in reverse, you know, if they if they took the tariffs off the subcomponents and put it on the finished goods, well, now everybody would be incentivized to assemble in the States. Um, that it would be game changing, yeah. which would create a ton of jobs. Um, and, and long-term what would happen is that in time, you know, if you think of that from a, uh, you know, let's take like an iPhone, right? Well, it doesn't make any sense to build an iPhone, in the States today, because all the subcomponents, with the exception of some of the chips, come from China. But I guarantee you, if there were a huge tariff on built phones and zero tariff on phone components, people would be opening phone assembly factories here in the States, right, and bringing stuff over. In time, that gets old. I mean, it is – this supply chain logistics stuff, it is hard, um, and it's fraught with risk. And like I said, any single part missing stops the whole thing. Um, so it, that does add cost, right? That you have to have higher inventories. And so in time, what would happen is the assembler puts pressure on the subcomponent producers to, to bring their manufacturing over and, and co-locate it with the assembly, the final assembly. And so in time, you really could pull a lot of that business back in my opinion. And, and like I said, the model for this is that we see it happening in Europe, uh, right now it's been going for the last 20 years with bicycles and a lot of bicycle subcomponents, um, that, you know, of, of course you're going to build wheels in, in Europe if the wheel is more expensive to bring in than, than the sum of its components, right? Of course you're going to bring the components in and build the wheel. And now you have skilled wheel builders. And then in time, you know, somebody's going to start building a hub or somebody's going to start making the spoke. So the same is true of every industry. And I think, you know, frustratingly from where we sit, uh, I think this is the, it, to me shows sort of the, the, the cluelessness or the lack of thought, um, or, or maybe it, it, it's something, you know, worse. I don't, I don't want to say that they're, um, you know, like malevolent in this, but you know, when I look at, at the way things have been done, it really, it's almost as if it were designed to offshore jobs. Uh, because certainly, I mean, you don't have to, you know, I'm not a business <laughs> business genius by any means. I'm not even a good business person, right? I'm an engineer uh, by training and I have had good ideas about product and I like bicycles, right? But I mean, I can, on the back of a napkin at dinner, pretty quickly 
make a hell of an argument for offshoring my entire business tomorrow, right? And and every other small business owner I know doing something similar to what we're doing, they're in the same boat. You know, everybody I talk to, we're all in the same boat. My God, if if I just pick this whole thing up and put it somewhere else, it it frees up. You know, it frees up all this money. All of a sudden, all of this this money we're throwing, we're it's essentially tax, right? I mean, tariff is tax, and all of this additional tax that we're paying to the government could be used to do all sorts of other things, right? Or, or kept as profit or, you know, used to hire or used to invest in capital or used for new designs or, uh, you know, marketing expands into new markets. I mean, there's a million ways to use it that would be far more effective and efficient for our business than just giving it to the government. Yeah, especially a government that doesn't seem to have your best interests, right? Like, what are they doing with that money? Right. <laughs> that's right. that's right. something that will make everybody really angry. Well, what's the, you know, let's finish on maybe, hopefully, some kind of positive note. Like, what's, what is being done to educate the people making these laws and the tariffs so that they can create better rules to incentivize the opposite of what's happening now? Anything? <laughs> uh, well, I, I know with within our industry, there's you know we have the BPSA, um, uh, which is the Bicycle Product Suppliers Association, and you know they they interface with uh, with the government and with you know congressmen and senators, uh, and and they're certainly trying to make this known. And I think pretty much every industry, you know, here in Indiana, we're you know the the kind of corn and soybean capital of of the country. I'm sure someone from Iowa is going to hear this and argue with, but you know that's how we certainly how we like to see ourselves and and uh, you know our farmers are are devastated right now because you know uh, China in particular is one of our uh, the the biggest customers of that and so you know I know that these farm uh, these you know the agriculture lobby is lobbying hard to try to get some of this fixed uh, you know the entire sporting goods industry uh, you know in all of its various forms is lobbying to fix this I think. Well, and because uh, I, I want to make sure I understand. So, like, the problem with the soybean and corn and stuff is, you know, China buys a lot of soy from the U.S., correct? And C- Correct, yeah. And they, China put retaliatory uh, tariffs on soy. So now, all of a sudden, U.S. soy costs a lot more in China, so they're buying a lot less of it, which is hurting U.S. farmers. So it's kind of like this just back and forth of, well, you're doing this bad thing to us, so we're going to do this bad thing to you. And it, it's like kids, right? Well, like I tell my kids all the time. You know, well, you hit her, so she's going to hit you. You're not sharing with her, so she's not going to share with you. Like it's, you guys are right, escalating right. this in a bad way. Whereas if you just were nice, then you'd share with her, she'd share with you, and it would de-escalate, and it would actually go the other way, where everything would get better and nicer. And it just doesn't seem like that's what's happening. Yeah, for sure. And I, I do think in there, your analogies totally holds water, except that. You know, with uh, and I don't want to gloss over it. You know, China, without a doubt, has been a very, very bad actor, right? right. In all of this, I mean, intellectual property theft. Um, you know, they're using uh, essentially, you know, government money to prop up, um, you know, companies and push prices down. And it, there, there is a ton. I mean, people have written books, uh, reams and reams of paper of the bad action coming out of China. So we, you know, I think without a doubt that needs to be addressed. And I certainly where I'm sad is, you know, we had this thing, the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership that really was kind of the U.S. and all of the other Pacific, you know, countries that have uh, Pacific Ocean connection really banning together 
to try to take a hardline stance as a group against China and easing the, the TPP allowed for the easing of duties, tariffs and taxes and, uh, you know, what they call like non-tariff trade barriers between all each other in an attempt to put pressure on China. And I think, you know, if you're, if you're going to make them change, if we're going to affect change in their behavior, it's going to have to be them against the world. Right. And, and so, you know, no agreement like that is, is going to, is perfect by any means. And I'm no trade policy expert, but you know, that, that certainly, uh, makes a lot of sense. You know, I mean, if, if, you know, your, your kids are tit for tat escalating, um, you know, and you dial it back and go, oh, well, gosh, you know, my one child is the one who starts this every time and is, you know, is the instigator. Um, we need to deal with that. And of course, you know, the, the reality is that the, the parent coming in and, and, you know, smacking the crap out of the instigating child isn't the solution, right? Like we, we, we need to all, you know, it takes a village, right? We need to come together and come up with a plan and we need to essentially give them no option but to straighten out. And uh, when we dissolve TPP, uh, uh, it became a free for all, right? And so, yeah, not, you know, certainly from where we sit, you know, with like the steel and aluminum barriers, well, when those went up, then all of a sudden trade barriers went back up for us in Korea, right? Who was a, essentially a zero tariff partner under TPP. Uh, so that makes it harder for me to sell into Korea, which is a huge market for us. And um, it, it's just, yeah, it, it makes no sense. And I think sadly for me, um, again, as a very data, data and analytics heavy engineering minded person, the, the reality is very clear that the decisions being made today are not being developed from uh, or driven by any sort of data or analytics or sound uh, economic theory, right? I think this is, it's a lot of, uh, you know, gut instinct and, and, and maybe wishful thinking <laughs> uh, and, and, and who knows what else, but I, I think we're absolutely at a place where, you know, and certainly if you follow the, the literature on this or, or you know, there's almost no economist in the world thinks that this can work for us, right? The the sad thing is the two people in the world who think that this can work are, are both work at the White House right now. Right, so, yeah. And, and these you know, you know, and, grand statements are the ones that unfortunately tend to – I hate to say win elections, but yeah, like the grand statements uh, – People just don't ever read into it. They don't research it on their own. There are not enough people to really vote based on the facts. They're just like they hear this thing. They like this slogan. And, you know, unfortunately, that's where well, we ended up with what we have. Yeah, it's but, and I think it's, you know, and to me, this is like, you know, I'm an independent. I don't have a party. I hate both the parties. I never like any of the candidates. I think they're all crazy. Um you know, we always get st we always get stuck with some something that's not working. Um, you know, I think we need a my opinion. We need some sort of like data <laughs> data party, right? Let's let's find something that works uh, elsewhere and let's implement that. You know, I, I think what was it a couple days ago they gave the uh, Presidential Medal of Freedom to to uh, Laffer. You know, the Laffer curve, if you're familiar with that. And you know, this is a an economic theory that every single time somebody has instituted. It, it, this theory and right, the theory is that by lowering, uh, by lowering taxes, the government will increase revenue. Um, and, and, you know, again, without a doubt it on a, on a grand scale, the Laffer curve is, is 
sort of it, it's sort of a real thing, right? The problem is that people use it, or it's been used to say, well, whatever tax rate we're at currently is you know is too high, and by lowering it will increase revenue. And if you look at it since the seventies, it has never once, not once, not a single time, has it worked, right? And so. it's been tried over and over again. And every time deficits grew. And so you have to look at it at some point and say, well, uh, something's wrong, right? (laughs) Right. We're missing something. The math, I mean, in science and engineering, you know, if, if I designed a part and every single time it broke, and then I just told you that it's not possible for it to break because I have this graph that says it can't break. And you're standing there with the broken part, right? Saying, yeah, but it's broken. In time, that company goes out of business, right? Because clearly there's a fleet. If you don't change and adapt to the data, the real world data, you go out of business. And I think that's the problem with, you know, with, with government, right? And, and politics. And in a way, I mean, you know, the Laffer curve to me, it, it's, it's a religion, right? It's like a, re, a religion of economics. There's, it, it doesn't need to work or not work. You just need to believe in it because the belief is the power that wins the vote, um, and I think that's the problem with so much of what we have, right? I mean, I listen, both both parties just speak so much nonsense. Um, and, and in a lot of areas, I think, you know, as a, as a science engineering-based person, right, I believe, like, you know, our strongest thing is in some cases to step back and go, you know what? We don't know what the hell the answer is. Let's go figure it out, right? Because pretending to know the answer is... Uh, it, that's going to get us in a whole lot more trouble than trying to understand the answer, um, you know, trying to learn from it, you know, or, or, you know, for God's sakes, let's look at other countries or other, uh, you know, even states, right, where things have been tried and they've worked. Okay, well, if you've got something that works, I'm in, <laughs> right? I'm, I'm pretty easy to convince. If we did it and it worked, let's see if it's repeatable, right? Because th- that's the next part of this, you know, have N equals one, you know, does not a data set make, <laughs> and uh, and so I think that's the the thing with the tariffs. You know, it, it's hard for me to look back and go, well, in the history of of ever, what we just did has gotten us what we just got every time, <laughs> right? So it's not like we didn't see ourselves walking into this. Um, you know, what what are our else. other options? Right. Yeah, let's let let's try something different. Um, you know, and and in the meantime, for us, we're gonna stay the course, doing what we're doing, and hope that the changes are made at their level. You know, I, I, for all you and the listeners, right. I'm not going to, I am not going to go offshore my business because that's not the kind of business that we look to run. Uh, but the very real world result is that prices will go up. Um, and I think, you know, most sad is that our prices will go up the most on our entirely U S made product because that's where my prices have gone up the most. Um, you know, I, I have some pro- some products today that we are selling for roughly what it costs us to make because our, our prices have moved so far uh, just in the last year. And, of course, that you can't run a business like that, right? I, you know, I, I can't make something for $100 and sell it for $100. Um, you know, you you got to keep the lights on. you got to pay the employees. You, it, that doesn't work. And so, uh, you know, the, the prices, if, if things don't change and change relatively quickly – Prices are, you know, going to go up on our stuff, and that's true of every single company I know. Yeah. Well, that's 
that's unfortunate, but it's probably a good spot to stop. I think, you know, if nothing else, if this helps people understand some of the realities behind the rhetoric here that, you know, like what's really happening, then maybe they'll uh, change their minds on their voting behaviors or at least try and do what they can to support the businesses that are trying to do the right thing. So, Josh, man, I really appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you. It's been good. So as you may have surmised from the very quick intro, Watts is not with me this week. He is traveling, I've been traveling, and it's just that busy season when we're both gone to product launches. Yes, I'm even sending Watts to a few product events this year. So if and when he gets around to actually writing up stories on those, they should be highly entertaining. In the meantime, we have got a ton of new bike and tech and product coverage on bikemember.com and for the first time ever, I went to Outdoor Retailer Show this summer where there was surprisingly little bike stuff. There's definitely some crossover brands. You know, Chrome was there and a few others that do, like Nog, they have their outdoor stuff that's trying to grow and also their bike stuff, obviously. But very few bike-only brands there. And it was sort of interesting to see, but what was a common theme was the fact that these companies are also having to deal with tariffs for stuff made in China and for the raw materials that are either sourced from China or being basically taken advantage of by the U.S. companies who now have the opportunity to raise their prices on those raw materials. So all of this stuff encompasses all of the toys we like to play with. And it's really frustrating to think that we're so easily manipulated and fooled into thinking, you know, there's, there's these big, bold promises of, hey, we're going to create jobs, we're going to bring jobs back to America. And when you really stop and think about it somehow, this stuff just doesn't work. And so basically my takeaway from this episode was, you know, really think about what's being promised and then think about how they're actually going to be able to deliver that. And it's hard to do when you don't have insider knowledge and you're not dealing with it day to day like Josh is. But, you know, ask some brands. Everybody in the cycling industry, I, I know is obviously in the industry, but most riders have at least some contact point with somebody in the industry, whether it's at a bike shop or they live near a bike brand or they're going to a demo and they can talk to some of the people at these events. Ask them how some of these things that are coming up in the election cycle and these political claims, say, hey, how does that affect you? And see what they say because it might give you a new perspective on the way things work. One last bit, not to politicize this at all, but I just watched, it's been a really long time, the um, hot coffee documentary about the woman who spilled hot coffee on herself and burned her and sued McDonald's and all that. And, you know, like I certainly had pre preconceived notions as to what it was about. That documentary is amazing. And it has very little to do with the fact that somebody spilled coffee on themselves and so much more with how everyone was manipulated and lied to and basically told this bill of goods about tort law and about damage limiting damages on things and then we just kind of screwed ourselves by paying attention to what was out there instead of really seeing what it was you know the media was just as much at fault as anybody else but when you watch this and see how big business and politicians used you know civic sounding and, and civilian sounding organizations to pump up their causes it will make you so angry, I promise. And it's something I think everybody needs to see. And on that note, we'll sign off. Uh, hopefully I'll get Watts on for the next one. We've got a few more killer episodes recorded and I can't wait for you to share them. In the meantime, hit subscribe, hit like, leave us a comment and review if you like this. And especially if you like it, tell a friend to go find Bike Rumor on their favorite podcast player and give us a listen. Thanks a lot. Have a great ride. See you next time. That's a wrap on this episode. Tune in next time for another great ride. 
be sure to follow at Pipe on your favorite social media and hit like and subscribe or leave a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks and we will see you next time.